Okay, welcome everybody to this um, uh, panel on um, AI and uh, early warning. So I'm Howard Hegre. I'm uh, uh, a research professor here at Prio, and I'm directing the VUES project, which is an early warning system for armed conflict, and uh, which we've been developing uh, here at Prio and at Uppsala University for some years. Um, so we are seeking to to produce early warnings of armed conflict, uh, but one really important constraint is that it's really hard to get uh, data that is uh, early in, in this sense, especially of events that hasn't really escalated yet. So um, so one of the most promising avenues to try to improve these early warning systems to get early signals is, is to use text data. So, um, and... Uh, AI methods or, or machine learning methods or language-based um, models to, to analyze this text data. So we assembled this uh, wonderful panel, which is uh, to a large degree um, uh, of local pre-white, um, but with um, some invited guests. Um, so it's Håkon Jailov, who is a research professor here at, um, at Prio. Uh, so <coughs> I just became a professor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So all you work with the union, you know. <laughs> then it's Sonja Hefner, who is at uh, the uh, University of the Bundeswehr Munich and the Crisis for Early Warning, the Center for the Crisis Early Warning. Yes. Yes. It's Simon Polishnell von der Maase, who is a... Uh, okay, I'll have to give you the same title. And, um, he's a researcher here at, um, uh, at Prio. Uh, and Mihai Kroke, who is a researcher or programmer here at Prio and also a, um, um, at Uppsala University, doing his PhD on, on, on these topics. So I think I'll just leave. Um, we will do first some for fairly quick presentations and we'll have a discussion about, uh, about these uh, methods and how they can be used to, to improve um, um, warnings of armed conflict. So I think I'll... Uh, let Simon start with uh, presenting a, uh, his paper, or with, with Mihai, um, called From Headlines to Hotspots, Mapping is it's not that anymore. Okay, I think Anticipating Escalation, so it's based on his paper, but then I'll, I'll just leave the microphone to you. Thanks. Uh, maybe Mihai can hold it. No, no, it's, it's perfectly fine. So uh, last evening when I was uh, finalizing these slides, I decided that our title was no longer descriptive of what we were actually doing. So it is still up in flux. But this is a paper, a very early stage paper that me and Mihai is working on together, which today is called Anticipating Escalation, Actionable Insight with Actor Embeddings and Transformers in Conflict Forecasting. Um, so as I said, very preliminary. Uh, so we would look forward to if, if people have any ideas or critiques or whatever. So uh, VUES, um, the consortium that Hovat mentioned, already produces uh, conflict forecasting, and we have a large network globally almost of partners who also work on conflict forecasting. There's also practitioners, NGOs, and governments that are working on different kinds of early warning system. So that's super encouraging, but... This link is not working, so that's annoying. Uh, can we, is this, yes, here we go. Uh, no, we don't. All right, what I would have shown you, if this was working correctly, was a small, can we get back here, uh, was a small time lapse showing how most of these, uh, 
Can I get somebody to make this big again? Yeah. Nice, thank you. Um, was a small time lapse of one of the conflict history models that is right now um, being developed. And it, that model does very well. It gets state-of-the-art results, but if you look throughout time, it doesn't predict a lot of spikes and it doesn't predict any onsets. It is, it is very kind of consistent in predicting a specific probability of conflict and a specific magnitude of conflict. It gets it pretty right on average, but it doesn't predict, you know, uh, large developments at all. And that is the case for most current models, if not all. So, uh, Seth Cadwell, uh, one of our good friends and a data scientist at UNOCHA, uh, have a lot of thoughts on these models. And he has recently created a blog where he compares a lot of these models and he just presented some of his work in uh, the Data for Peace conference last week. Uh, and he thinks that there's insufficient justification for exclusively relying on conflict prediction models to drive anticipatory actions due to several factors. Poor performance in predicting uh, onsets of new conflicts, the lack of clear connection between predicted conflicts and resulting humanitarian impact, and the dominance of ongoing conflict as predictors of future conflict. And uh, he's not wrong. Uh, most of the major models right now use some sort of conflict history as the prime predictor. Um, socioeconomic, institutional, and demographic variables or features usually lack the variance in the signal to really tell us something about highly dynamic developments. Um, this is either because the phenomena are just inert in nature or because the way they are measured. So... Seth and his team has a number of recommendations, and one of the recommendations is to focus uh, on models uh, that predict shifts in conflict, such as increases is in intensity or onsets. And fair uh, there, and Seth is a pretty clever person, so me and Mihai is creating a new model for Seth and everybody else in, in kind of the practitioner, humanitarian, and academic fields that might find this valuable. So what we are looking to produce, uh, to create, is a model specifically designed to generate actionable insights by utilizing active embeddings and transformers networks for forecasting escalatory patterns. And to, I will go into some of the kind of uh, the jargon here in a second, so don't worry about that. Um, but what we want to emphasize with this model is to specifically try to capture escalatory patterns. Not exclusively onsets, though a lot of conflict researchers doing conflict forecasting sees the prediction of novel conflict onsets as the holy grail. Um, I, I know that it would be nice to, to predict onsets, but when we look at, for instance, coup in Africa the last couple of years, it wasn't totally unpredictable that Niger would see a coup. It, you know, the probability of a coup was rather high at that point, given the surrounding countries. But there was pretty limited room for actions. I don't know what people, if I could have said with 99% probability last, uh, this spring that there would be a coup in Niger, I don't know what the international community would have done about it. Uh, similarly, if you put, you know, a couple of hundred thousand troops on the border of Ukraine and people say this might look like an invasion, what are the international community to do about it? So I think, of course, we should look uh, at improving our abilities to predict onsets, but I think it's really important that we also just try to predict spikes in ongoing conflicts because, arguably, um, there is more room for actions in areas where humanitarians and practitioners are already present and mandated. So 
we try to do both. Uh, in a nutshell, this is what we will try to, to do. We will have as our unit of predictions um, actor groups. Um, we will try to predict how many future battle-related fatalities are produced by these groups. We will forecast a sequence of 12 months. It is important here that I note sequence. Uh, I will get back to this because this is not how we do things today. Um, we will use something called transformer neural networks and as inputs for these neural networks, we will create actor embeddings. And I will try to unpack this jargon very quickly, um, these three things, embeddings, transformers, and sequences. So embeddings is just a multidimensional summaries of information, right? So you all have in your head like some idea of which actor groups are close to each other and which affide each other. So you could consider like a 2D actor space where one dimension was... Uh, Cool. One dimension was, say, uh, capability, and the other was ideology, and you will have an idea where, say, um, ETA and IRA were placed and where Boko Haram and ISIS was placed in this space. But then just imagine you have a thousand dimensions to place all these different armed actor groups in, in, uh, inside your head. What embeddings are are just machine learning trying to do what humans already do. They try to position these... Um, here, actor groups inside, inside these large multidimensional spaces where every actor group is placed relative to each other in regards to some dimension that the machine learning model learns themselves. So we could think about salient dimensions such as uh, ideology or whatever, but here the machine learning model uses themselves. Um, transformers are simply big models that take these embeddings, so instead of taking in an actor name or number of an actor, it takes in these large embeddings, vectors of number representing how this actor is viewed by the machine compared to all other actors. And then it simply looks over all actors through all time and giving some actor at some point, it tries to find similar patterns and extrapolate them into the future. So it's actually doing, it's tried to doing what human would do themselves, right? We would look at one actor, then we would go through a catalog of everything we know about different conflict actors and armed actors, and we will try to say, all right, giving all this knowledge, what would this specific actor do? So sequence just means that we try to predict all 12 months or another number. I decided 12 yesterday because we have been going back and forth on that. But uh, in one shot, instead of doing like uh, one prediction at a time and then dynamically going forward or trying to predict shifted lags into the future, we will predict all the whole sequence in once. So here are some additional features. That's not that important. And this is uh, behind me. So there we go. Thanks for listening. Thanks. And I'll leave the microphone to Mihai, who will... Um, uh Present another version of, of a similar method. Uh, hi everyone, I'm Mihai, and I'm going to present something very much in line with what I'm working with uh, Simon, but focusing on the other end of the thing. So, the problem. Um, why our prediction models are doing so well to predict uh, conflict continuation, but not onsets. It's because of the data that goes in. The data that goes in is so-called battle event data from sources like the Uppsala Conflict Data Program, GED, uh, the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Sets, CAD, and many other data uh, from both practitioners and academic communities. Most of these are event data, so pinpointed locations with fatalities of 
armed conflict battles, events. So shelling in Zaporizhia or um, uh, an attack on the border between Niger and Mali, pinpointed to georeference to the exact location and date. This is extremely good data. Uh, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands. This is a map of what we have for the main data set that goes into these conflict history models just for this year. But they only contain this location, date, fatalities, uh, and actor name. This is a bit of a problem when we're studying conflict dynamics. We know that there are other things that trigger escalation. Things like, for example, attacks on religious sites. And um, as Hamas attacked recently uh, Israel, they did it on the, 30th, on, the, on the 50th year anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. So again, it's repeated, repeating patterns. It's uh, dynamics triggered by things that are embedded into the, that event, but that are not captured by just date, location, armed actor, country. Uh, can we do something about it? Well, yes, we can, because the people that collect this data, and this data is manually curated, <coughs> keep this original source where they've gotten this event from, uh, which is usually newswire text, like Reuters, AFP, um, Associated Press, and so on and so forth. So the question is, can we do something to mine that rich corpus of data that's already annotated with these events for things like religious violence, electoral violence, attacks on hospitals, or attacks on civilian infrastructure, or anything else. And it turns out that we can. And the typical way of doing this, and yes, I, have a, I missed the six-minute uh, cue, so I've made it a bit short. This is how one of these articles look, looks like. Um, and the question is, how do we do it without asking humans to go through 30 million words? Because that would take three years for just one question. Well, what we can do is use something called active learning. Active learning is basically train a classifier or train a machine learning model with very limited amounts of data, ask, a human, uh, ask it to predict based on that limited amount of data it's trained, select a small number of articles that it predicted based on a certain uncertainty principle, give it to a human to validate, feedback to the model in a feedback loop, repeat this as many times until things get better. Does this work? Uh, yes, it does. What we do is exactly this. Start from a unsupervised seed of, um, unsupervised basically dictionary search over the whole corpus to find out some sort of distribution of likely events, mine some, give to an oracle, which is a human annotator, to basically code a few of them, send the resulted human-marked 100 articles, which takes less than a day, to a large language model to fine-tune, then predict another set of, uh, of articles, feed uh, those that it predicted, feed a hundred of those samples to a human annotator, and then iteratively improve the machine learning model until results are satisfactory. And are results satisfactory? Yes, they are. Um, here is a representation for religious violence. We end up at accuracies of 0.995, but given that the number of religious violence events is relatively limited, um, 
scores that are better for these kinds of unbalanced data sets where the class of interest is rare, like uh, average precision, are still exceptional at around 0.8 after just about 1,000 articles coded by humans. And 1,000 articles, that's about one day's work versus doing it by hand, that would be about two years' work. Um, and a human has an accuracy, has an average precision because we've tested that of about the same as the green line there. So we can reach human capacity with just 1% of human work. And this allows us to explore things like religious violence, electoral violence, attack on transportation, attacks on civilian infrastructure, which can then be fed into things like what I'm doing at Simon or things like think the current infrastructure of use without any problem and allow us things like onset. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Mihai. Um, so then I'll pass the microphone, or maybe you have your own microphone, to Håkon, who will uh, give us another angle to this, um, uh, this set of uh, tools and solutions. Is that a professor privilege to get your own microphone? Yes, it is. Mm, you not have even, to, no, I also have my own microphone. You have to get the promotion. <laughs> it's when you're being on time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have two minutes to go in <laughs> Perfect. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand up. <clears throat> um, all right. So um, this is a quite different type of project. So these guys are working on uh, the views project, uh, predicting conflict. I'm working on trying to describe uh, the history of Zambia using similar tools. And by describing Zambian history, maybe we can do something similar to what these guys are doing. All right. So. <clears throat> A couple of years ago, we got an agreement with the, the parliament in Zambia to digitalize the archive of parliamentary debates. This goes back to 1924, to the colonial period of Zambia, and it covers 100 years of parliamentary history in Zambia. Um, these, this archive includes like the list of members of who's in that uh, parliament, and what every member is saying at any time uh, at the parliamentary floor. So that's the archive. So what? What can we do with this? So to understand this, we, we first have to take a step back. So if you Google any parliament in, in Europe, you will see something like this, right? There will be uh, some uh, allocation of seats, and they will go from red at the left to blue at the right. And this is what we call the left-right scale in politics, right? You've all heard about this. And we more generally, we call this the spatial model of politics. And the spatial model of politics, where we pretend that politics can somehow be put into like a geographical space with coordinates. That's basically what we're seeing here. Some, someone are more to the left and someone are more to the right. This way of thinking about politics is very integral to how commentators work, how we think. Like this, this is totally integral to how we think about politics. So the Republican Party is totally divided, spatially divided over the new speaker. We can think about, this is the negotiations over a new, uh, it's in Oslo, finding a new Beutold here. Uh, and it collapsed because the distances were too large, right? That's the spatial model of politics implemented in commentary. It's also how we think about international, uh, international relations uh, in that we are having a new axis. And these international uh, distances between international actors and the salience of various topics is how we uh, often talk about the escalation of conflict, right? So this is totally integral to how we think about politics. 
So if we can position political actors in a spatial dimensions, then we can start to analyze uh, conflict, division, polarization, uh, and various political uh, developments. So the question then is, how can I get my archive into the spatial, uh, spatial model of politics? And the answer, of course, here today is by the use of AI models. It's just that uh, you notice that we don't say AI a lot. Instead, we, we say ML, or machine learning approaches, which is basically the same thing. Right? So the way we do this is we use three different types of machine learning models to make our parliamentary deba debates into the spatial model of politics. We start with an optical character recognition. This is because we have scanned documents with images, so the machine somehow has to recognize that the letter S is actually the letter S, right? It's obvious to the human eye, but it's not obvious to the machine, right? So we use an OCR, an optical character recognition, simply to make this into machine-readable text. And once we've done that, then we can start looking into clusters of text, which would represent various topics, political topics, health, education, constitution, judiciary, all these things that politicians talk about. This is what these guys just talked about, right? So this is the same thing. Embedding model, sequencer, blah, 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 blah. All of that goes into here. And finally also, then we can use machine learning models to scale political actors within specific topics. So we can look at health and we can say which political actors disagree or agree more within the topic of health or within the topic of elections, etc., etc. Right? I just show one output that we have right now. We're, this is still work in progress. But during the colonial rule, right, so the, the, the legislative council in northern Rhodesia, which was uh, Zambia, was filled with uh, male white, or not really filled, it was like seven or ten <laughs> British uh, white males. That was there, right? And they kept talking about the Africans in often very derogatory terms and, and uh, did with them whatever, however they pleased, right? And this pops out as a topic in our topic models. It pops out as a cluster of politicians talking about Africans in a, in a specific way. And we see this is basically a measure of salience. How much do they talk about this over the course of the years? We start with 1924 when the parliament is erected, and we stop here in 1973. But there's this drop that happens right here. So why, why does that happen right here? Well, what happens is that we get these two guys in. Suddenly, the Africans to get to representation get to be represented within the parliament, and we see that the discourse within parliament changes, right? And these are the things that we can start to analyze once we are able to uh, use AI or machine learning models to position political actors. Then we can start to discuss how does representation affect conflict, how does it affect uh, uh, inequality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we can think about a lot of ways we could use this to forecast, not only in Zambia, this is a method we could use anywhere to talk about political polarization, maybe that has an effect on electoral violence. We can think about the salience of certain topics, maybe like communal violence, the salience of, of uh, topics concerning <coughs> violence and murder, uh, crime, etc., or we could think about sentiments towards other states. We could try to look at international relations through the lens of, of parliamentary speeches or otherwise how political actors talk about other, other political actors. All right, thank you. Thanks a lot, Torkon. Then I'll leave the floor to you, Sonia.
thank you for the invitation. Um, today, I'm really excited to present you the work that we are doing at the Center for Crisis Early Warning at the Bundeswehr University Munich, um, which is joint work with my colleague. Um, we are basically looking at how text data can actually improve conflict prediction models. Um, and why, why actually do we do that? Why do we look at text data? I'm really grateful here for the two speakers <laughs> who already mentioned some of the aspects or issues that we have when predicting conflict. Um, and I just want to focus on the issue here that most of the structural variables that we use for conflict prediction, they don't change a lot. So they're measured on a country year basis. And if we then use these variables to predict something that is varying within one year, that doesn't work. You cannot take a constant and expect it to explain variation. Um, so that's where text data comes in. Um, because it has this really high resolution, temporal frequency, um, it's generated in huge quantities, and then also you can assign it not only to the country level, but potentially also lower uh, geographical level. Um, like aside having this high resolution, I mean, text data is super accessible, so you can scrape it online. There's tons of text generated every day. But for our focus now for this study, we are mostly focusing on uh, online newspaper articles um, and then, and also crisis watch um, reports, which are expert reports about the current conflict situation in the country. So we have this rich te text data now, and we somehow have to condense information in that. And that's where uh, natural language processing tools come in handy. And I just see somehow this is not the presentation I wanted to send. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I can't. Well, uh -huh. Yeah, I can think I can still work with that, but okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so, okay, so great. We have these tools um, that are able to work with those huge, huge amounts of text. Um, so then what we do is um, we have a two-step approach. And the first step, the first task is how do we extract text features from these corpora? And then in the second step, how can we use these text uh, features to predict conflict on set? Uh, and then we have a variability of models uh, that we're using. So the target is fatalities, so people dying in a certain country in a month. And then we build several baseline models with several features, such as conflict history, but also more socioeconomic, social political models. And then we add four different NLP approaches to that. Uh, we work with two different data sets because we also want to see whether there's additional information in newspaper articles. Um, maybe we don't even need that large corpus of newspaper articles and we can just use crisis watch reports because let me tell you, like working computationally with newspaper articles is intense. You need infrastructure for that and if less articles work better, then it would be, would be really good. Um, so now let me see which slides I'm going to... Just here, the regional coverage of the papers that were, or the reports that we are using for Crisis Watch, we actually have really good coverage around the globe. And then we already see a drawback of the news corpus that we're using because it focuses on certain countries and on others, it doesn't. So, in an ideal scenario, we would have a really nice diverse corpus, but we don't have that. Um, if anyone knows of such a corpus or has access to, I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> so. Um, I just want to focus here a bit more on the NLP approaches. 
Um, and specifically, I want to look at the transformer model, um, which is the like the last model listed, but then the best performing model, as you can see. So if we just use text and then use a transformer model that has been trained on political text and fine-tune that on our task with just that text, uh, we get a really, really high metric for predicting fatalities. So these models are doing a great job at extracting concepts from text conflict intensity. Uh, simple approaches are not doing that well. Um, we also developed an objective conflict dictionary that uses deep learning methods in order to predict fatalities. And then afterwards, we go a step back and we look which words actually contribute to the predictions. And then we extract these words and build dictionaries with them. So those dictionaries work better than other dictionaries, but like not as we really see why those transform models perform that well. Um, yes. So, but overall, if we're looking at our models, and here's the performance. I don't want you to focus on the different NLP methods. Um, if we look at the conflict trend for the BBC, we see it performs reasonably well. And then text features can add a bit to that. But in terms of performance, not really a lot. Um, and what is even surprising, the BERT model that works so well as a single feature, now then, in addition to conflict history, doesn't work at all anymore. So... Um, Still a lot of things to do um, for time. Yeah, well, just to wrap it up, um, we're trying to provide an overview of how you can extract text features for conflict prediction and do a comparative assessment. What we see, NLP tools and text data, unfortunately, is not a silver bullet. We cannot just sprinkle it on our models and they just solve conflict prediction. doesn't work that way. Um, there's still lots of stuff to do. No NLP approach is dominant. Um, the text corpus is relevant, but I really see a lot of potential, and there's, this is an early assessment. There's so much there still to do, and especially I think you're, I really want to talk to you later after we've heard about your project. But yeah, thanks. That's from my side. Thanks a lot, Sonia. Um, I, I have a couple of questions I'll ask you, and then... Um, I'll uh, open the to the floor for for questions. So uh, thanks for these presentations. Um, I I was wondering um, would you could say something about um, what it takes to apply methods like you've been using to to try to identify a a a, a, a any uh, definition of of some violence or some event class that we're interested in, so such as abductions or. Um, gender-based violence or um, so what does it take using these methods to 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 adapt to a new uh, target if you like if you can just me I just a couple of sentences on on, on the process of, of training a new system for for a entirely new um, outcome in order to see a bit how the practical implications of these methods well it depends a lot, right? Uh, you can go and retrain a whole... So you can do what Vito Doratio did and retrain Bert to understand conflict-related news articles from scratch. That takes about 
we we no longer measure it in kilowatts. We measure it in tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, and it's about a thousand tons. So we're talking enormous amounts of energy use and compute to do that. But once it's trained, or once it's raw trained, which is basically understanding English or understanding the language you want uh, to understand, fine-tuning it, so training it a bit more to do what you want with it, isn't that complicated. My approach specific, was specifically designed to reduce the amount of human needed hours as much as possible uh, with some costs uh, in terms of accuracy, but I think the trade-off is okay. Uh, but my approach would require about one day's work for a human and one day's work for a server with a big GPU in it. So that's not particularly bad, but that's because it's designed like that. You could do way more than that and you could do anything between nothing and have a zero-shot approach with uh, just having a pre-trained model trying to do it without any extra knowledge. And that will actually give you some potentially decent results for some things. Doing my approach, which is a relatively low workload approach, to going all the way to Vito Dorazio's approach, tens of thousands of tons of carbon dioxide and server farms. Uh, anything goes. But there are ways. <clears throat> it also depends a bit on, on whether you have uh, what is called a supervised task or unsupervised task because what Mia here describes and, and what, what is done mostly for these big uh, text models is unsupervised or semi-supervised, which basically just means that if I give these models all the works of Shakespeare, they will relate these works and these words and they will these models would give an understanding of how Shakespeare's text universe is, is connected. Uh, but you don't have any human uh, annotators first saying this text is about a king and this text is about a fairy. For supervised tasks, which is perhaps what we more traditionally have been working with in, in conflict studies, you need some humans first saying, all right, so this piece of text is related to this phenomenon. And that is uh, that is not expensive in, in carbon dioxide as such, but that is expensive in research hour, either for researchers or for research assistants. So I think a lot of it is it is prudent today when you think about what to do with language models to think about where you could do it semi supervised or unsupervised because the the time and money resources that goes into human annotating is is a lot and it i have seen it seen it kind of uh, kind of slow down projects uh, many times so um, so think about that a bit um yeah, I have my microphone. Uh, well, yeah, what I want to add on what you said, yes, the pre-training is really, really resource intense. But then luckily, I mean, there is those open source companies like Hugging Face where you can basically, everyone who trains a model can then upload it and I can simply download the model. So um, those models can either be pre-trained, but they can also be fine-tuned models. So it's not... So and this, I think, is a great approach. So not everyone is doing the same task over and over again. No, like if, if I'm, there is like, I don't know, like many 10,000 models there are currently on Hugging Face. And it ranges from finance topics, like models um, trained on financial data to medicine application, then for all kinds of different tasks. So you could simply go there, look for a model that is sim like at least a bit similar to your task, then fine-tune it, and so you really reduce your, your impact. And I think the sharing is a really great thing to do.
I can just add that the, we all ass, assuming that we have then text to work with, which is actually relevant for the task you want to solve, right? So uh, I can't use parliamentary debates to figure out NASA's strategy for the next 10 years, right? Probably. It's, it's from somewhere where everything comes. No, um, okay, I, another question is, um, so you're basing this on, on text data, so uh, suddenly you mentioned both the crisis watch data and BBC monitoring. I, so one question is, and, and you of course use the parliamentary debate, so to what extent is, I mean, if, if you think about uh, spreading, so, so using these models that are publicly available need to retrain, that kind of gives accessibility for, for people that want to apply these methods for, for early warning or for any purpose. Um, but the text data that you're base, basing this on, how accessible are they? Um, are they um, are they behind paywalls? Are they uh, classified? Uh, to what extent is this open source? To what extent can we produce models that are replicable in, in any sense? So if you can say a little bit about that. Yes, on the text data. Um, the, one of the reasons why we're working with Crisis Watch articles is that they're open source. Uh, they're valuable. Everyone can go on their website and then you write a scraper and you download it. They made it a lot more difficult now, but it's still possible to do. Um, with the newspaper articles, it's getting increasingly more difficult. So in an ideal scenario, that's what I said, I, I, we are not happy with the corpus. It's just the corpus that we have. Um, someone bought that for us, but... Um, and an idea of what I would have a combination of large international newspaper articles but, or agencies, but then also local newspapers, also in different languages um, for each country. But that's not possible to obtain. So they are behind the payroll and LexisNexis or Factiva are making it or increasingly difficult to work with that. And also larger newspapers are dropping out of that because they want you to pay money. Obviously also understandable. So replication is an issue if you have those newspaper corpora from BBC, we couldn't publish that, like, or we couldn't offer that for replication. Yeah, I think this is the field where we really need more work. We need a corpus. Well, Factiva is getting better in the sense of they're actually offering API access. Uh, they're offering a standard way of getting things, and they're offering, uh, they're offering academic contracts. It costs $20,000 per year. That's the problem. Um, sharing data depends. They are open and closed depending on replication. They're, it's negotiable. But they are becoming better in that sense. But it's definitely not open source. For news stuff, it's never going to be open source. Because that's what Reuters, AFP, Agence France Press are making their money from. Uh, and it's a business that's many hundreds of millions of dollars worth. Uh, it's Dow Jones, it's uh, big corporations that need to make a profit. They are accountable to their shareholders. They won't share their core product in real time for free. That's something we can never, ever, ever expect them to do. With Crisis Watch, with things like that, that's another. Pr the other problem is, yes, they're accept accessible openly. So with Factiva, you pay and you can use them. And they're happy to give access to them. And they're really happy to listen about these things. They're happy about my paper. They're happy about Simon's paper. We're in good contact with them and views. With ICG, Crisis Watch, things like that, 
they're open on the web, but they're probably not happy about how we're using their, their data. So it's a big trade-off between... Although just jumping in, we did use their paper, where we have a published paper with their reports and they were... I mean, it was a bit hard reaching them, but they were like, it's fine. Do it, use it, so... <laughs> yeah, it was a mess getting in contact. Like yeah. getting in contact with them was an issue. Okay, um, there's certainly some questions from the audience. Uh, anyone? Jonas, you have a question? Hello, I'm Jonas Espy, senior researcher here at Prio. Um, so I, I guess I have some question relating to kind of how uh, these prediction forecast models um, kind of interact with policy and policy interventions in, in various ways. So one question is, um, so what is the time, how long is the time from things kind of happen? And then it comes news and you collect, collect the news and then it comes into your data sets and then you, you analyze it and, and make some forecasts. So how long is that time? You know, that time span is really important for what kinds of policy interventions we can kind of uh, think of. Uh, I also wonder kind of um, how easy it is to understand why embedded models make the prediction they do, uh, kind of what kinds of policy interventions should be made given the different types of features or understandings from the news, you know, that go goes in. How easy is that to, uh, to get to? And also whether you could comment on the importance of the quality of the data that goes in versus the quantity of the data that comes in. Thanks. So first of all, with, with quality versus quantity, if you if you do like both Mihai and, and Sonja's suggestion, which I think is, is the way to go, if you go into a, a, a place like Hogging Face and you download a big text model that is already trained on billions of, uh, of text pieces and you retrain it, then it is quality over quantity. Interesting. That is, uh, and that has been shown multiple times now. Uh, that you know, a uh, thousand or ten thousand really good text pieces when you retrain a model is better than a million bad text pieces for sure. Um, then to your question about you know how easy is it to extract kind of substantial information from embeddings. I think it's a bit of a, it has been like a bit of a historical straw man to say, oh, these are black box models. Um, <clears throat> So uh, I like to point out the fact that the steam engine was invented before the laws of thermodynamic was uh, found out, uh, and I think so. So these these are black boxes, but but it's just numbers, and we can decode these black boxes as well. It takes effort and it takes research, and it is not as trivial as looking at a regression table. But then again, if the regression table represents wrong models, then it doesn't really help us, right? So. Work has to go into it, but it's, uh, it's by no means impossible. I forgot your first question. So I had to point out what we are doing in this project is not real-time prediction. So um, we have the corpus, and then depending on which NLP method we do, we have the text for each month. It's like a matter of seconds for Crisis Watch text to build those features. For BBC monitoring, it's a bit more intense because of the sheer quantity that we are working with. Um, but in a, in a general scenario, if we really would want to do real-time prediction, I, mean, I just know for the Crisis Watch reports that they, month, on a monthly basis, they publish them. So, um, so you could, at that month, beginning of the month, they publish them, you could download them, um, apply your methods, and then predict. Um, so I think if you have the right corpus and you have access to it, building a pipeline so that these things run in smoothly can it can run for you really fast then. 
I'm echoing you on this. We're not at the stage of having real-time prediction at this point because we're still developing models. So everything that we've talked here is, as you've heard, preliminary, being built, uh, research paper level. Uh, but once we... So it depends on the model, uh, but uh, an esc like the model that we would have, uh, me and Simon would have, um, using Factiva's, um, Factiva's streaming API, to which we have access, and they're really happy to, to give it. They're really happy to help us set it up. Uh, I would say that it would be realistic to do predictions on a weekly basis. Uh, it does take, in, in a world of unlimited resources and in a limited world of unlimited data, you could do it by the second if you want. You could update everything by the second, but that's not going to be feasible. Each new article, you, train, you put it through the model, do some sort of, uh, of improved training, but that's not going to be feasible. Uh, for a first stage of the resources we have, I would say weekly would be possible with a relatively simple model. With exponentially bigger resources, probably daily. But we're talking, we're already talking, moving from, I don't know, pre-level resources to big corporation that sells this as a product with a 1,000 people engineering team. But this, there is no impediment because news is produced and sold out at second intervals. There is no technical impediment. It's just a human and financing impediment and development impediment. Can I have a last point to that? At least, at least for all the practitioners that I have talked to that use our data, they also, at the most, they would have resources to, to use our prediction at a weekly basis. They wouldn't, anything more granular than that would, would be beyond their capabilities to even kind of pass, so. Thanks. Yes. I have two brief questions, one on the um, Zambian example. The Zambian documentation, uh, does it go beyond the post-independent Zambia as well? In which case, do you think uh, presidents like Kaunda or Chilba would have predicted what happened to them you know, in, in their politi political scenes? And would AI eventually could have helped in solving the kind of conflict at the political level, not as an armed conflict, but as you know, in the political level, there's been so much of unrest that's happening, which also had some so overflow into ethnic kind of tensions as well between the people who had money, for example, Asians and the, and the, and the, and the Zabians. Also, does these factors take into consideration when you look at the conflicts and conflict prevention? The other one is to what extent AI and ML, for example, can indeed be an addition to policy-level decision-making of multi-level actors at government level, like, for example, Ukrainian conflict, uh, which somebody said today that it could have been prevented or whatever it is. Do, does AI have examples of... Of, of these conflicts being not only predicted, but aiding in prevention of it. Thank you. I can at least start with the, the summing question. So one of the things we are, uh, in, I, the short answer is I don't know. <laughs> the, uh, the long answer is that we're interested, of course, in understanding uh, both the collapse of the one-party state, maybe also even the establishment of the one-party state under Kalanda, um, the, 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 the nationalism, Kalanda's uh, one Zambia nationalism and how he established the Zambian state, but also the, the later autocratization period. And particularly trying to understand how the, uh, the uh, uh, presidents and, uh, of Zambia have been able to co-opt 
co-opt the other elites. So it, can we see similarities in how they talk in parliament and then understand who becomes ministers, who gets uh, what types of benefits allocated from the president? So those type of alliances we hope to be able to detect. But I don't know. So for your second part, have you example of conflict or escalation ever being prevented by our data? So the tragedy of conflict forecasting is the fact that if we have ever helped prevent a conflict, it shows up in our data as a false positive. So then people will say, as you said, there will be a conflict. There is no conflict. And we will be like, but maybe there would have been if we hadn't pointed it out. And it's, um, it's a weird kind of conundrum because we have in our models prediction that said this is going to be a conflict, this is going to be a conflict, and the conflict doesn't manifest. And then suddenly it manifests, and then we were right. But where we write the, you know, the preceding six months where we also uh, uh, told there was going to be a conflict, it's, it's, it's a weird question because surely there was a risk of conflict if conflicts finally happened. But we did not have the, you know, the variance in the data to actually know that it wasn't going to come Yet. And then there's a question of how precise can women be. So, um, so in order for us to actually know whether or not we, we, we help prevent something, we needed an actor to specifically tell us we used your data to do this, and our assessment is that it would have turned out different. And I don't think we are collecting those kind of assessments at the moment. And maybe just shortly adding to that, uh, at least... I'm not speaking for the uh, foreign federal office in Germany, but at least from our, our work with them, um, as far as I know, all governments don't use machine learning models to, they don't, I mean, they don't simply work. Uh, we've seen that we are, we, we are bad at predicting onset. Um, so, so the decisions are not based on these models. And also, we, that's the question uh, of conflict forecasting. I don't think this is, we are in the next future actually ever going to be able to forecast those outliers, those onsets that are, the nature of them is so complex and difficult and uh, the human factor in, 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 in there and the whole process is so prominent. So I don't think in the next time uh, we will be able to predict that. It's a tool to help us see an increased risk, but predicting onset is super difficult. I just wanted to add really quickly that there's also this uh, potential source of political manipulation here, right? So if the Views Project said that there's going to be a coup in Nigeria, what would the leadership of Nigeria do with that, right? So, so there's a real potential use of this for sitting politicians also to manipulate the forecasts. Now the time has ticked down, so I'm going to be uh, uh, cut out some of my questions. Um, but I want to go back to the point that Simon was making in your presentation about and kind of question uh, UNOCHR on the critique because it seems from a policy perspective being able to uh, estimate spikes in violence is super valuable because then you have policymakers on the ground and uh, maybe predictions out of the blue would be valuable but it seems that in terms of policymaking and a response time, you'd have troops on the ground or peacemakers or peacekeeping troops on the ground. So could you comment a little bit more on the policy response to uh, the early warning? 
First of all, I 100% agree. If that wasn't clear by the presentation, I just want to say that that is exactly what I mean. That onsets, first of all, is hard, but also what are we going to do with hard onsets? If we tell people, are they really going to act? I 100% agree that it is it is from a policy perspective, more interesting to, to predict spikes in ongoing conflict because, you know, humanitarians can have actors and mandates on the ground. We can have international actors already there. So so if that wasn't clear, just that is 100% uh, what I think we should do. Um, yeah. And just as a comment uh, on both both these points, uh, as, as many of you know, hard onsets are extremely rare. Ukraine on the 24th of February 2022 is not a hard onset. Views had a red dot for Ukraine because it was an ongoing conflict. It didn't have an ongoing spike for escalation, although it did have some escalation there. Uh, but that was already a conflict. That's not a hard onset. Khartoum was a red dot in views ever since the first map, essentially, as a high-risk zone. Uh, Niger is, if you look at the maps, uh, always been a high-risk zone for state-based conflict. It's not, these are not, these were not uh, low-risk areas that were completely white. These were high-risk areas in the models we already have. Uh, the problem is getting a better sense of the temporal resolution and spikes. So when is it going to happen when we see the signals for esca escalation? Right now, they are quite distributed over a long, long dis temporal distribution, which is not necessarily that useful. Uh, and all of us here think we can do better. Uh, but Definitely, definitely, we're not saying that we only see things in the past because that's that's not the case even with the most beginning level models that we already have in production. Okay, thanks. Um, I think time is running out, so I'd like to thank the panel for all these insights, both on the use of text-based AI models. Um, and also all this discussion on on the challenges of, of early warning uh, based on the question from the audience. Thanks for the audience for showing up and for, for really, really good questions. So thanks. Thank you.